Welcome, everyone, to this special bonus episode where we're going to discuss the 1993 film Fire in the Sky, starring Robert Patrick and D.B. Sweeney. With me for this discussion is my good friend and co-host on our other podcast, The Coda. It's Brian Hasty. Brian, how you doing, man? Rob, you know, I'm out here surviving as always. I always tell you these days. I think that is like the bare minimum that I'm up to. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, we're all living in a ghetto. We're, uh, we're hustling, but you know what? We're doing our best to make it out. Darn right. God damn right. So if you're tuning into this and you have never seen Fire in the Sky, what are you doing? Stop the episode. Go and watch it. It's going to take you an hour and 49 minutes. We'll still be here. Don't worry. But uh, if you don't know what Fire in the Sky is, it is the film based on Travis Walton's book, The Walton Experience, which was released in 1978, then re-released as Fire in the Sky uh, to coincide with the film release. But for all the normies out there that have never given this film a shot, I will, uh, I'll give you a little brief synopsis here. And this was pulled from IMDb. So here we go. Quote, This film recreates the strange events which happened on November 5th, 1975, in the town of Snowflake, Arizona. Travis Walton works as a logger in the White Mountains. When he and his colleagues drive home after work, they encounter a flying saucer. Travis gets out of the truck to learn more and is struck by a beam of light from the object. For the next five days, Travis disappears without a trace and his colleagues are accused of murder. When he reappears, first, he didn't remember that he was gone, but in time... The terrible memories come back. <laughs> and, and, like, if you want a summary of what actually happened, that's that's a pretty good synopsis of what actually happened. This is a pretty good synopsis of what my Travis Walton episode covered. But it doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty of what this film is. And I think it's because it has kind of just, like, a lukewarm rep- um, reputation. But... This synopsis was written by uh, Peter Simeon of IMDb. Uh, We'll we'll just uh, briefly run through to the the, uh, stars of the film here. So I mentioned Robert Patrick. He uh, stars as Mike Rogers. If you remember from the Travis Walton episode, he is the foreman, uh, the guy that hired Travis Walton to go work uh, in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. So... By this time, he was pretty well-known. He was the T-1000 from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Co-starring is D.B. Sweeney as Travis Walton. He had just come off the film The Cutting Edge. Brian, have you ever seen The Cutting Edge? So, funnily enough, that is actually one of my wife's favorite movies, and one of the first things we did when uh, we started doing is I found her DVD copy of it. Really? You went and yes. watched it? Yes. What is getting Okay, what is, what is your uh, take on that film? It's fine. It's fine. It's a good film. It's uh, I, I wish more people would, would see it. Delightful. It's delightful, yes. It's a figure skating movie. I think that's really what made D.B. Sweeney's career at that point, because he went on to do not like uh, feature starring roles, uh, unless you consider uh, his role as John Galt in uh, Atlas Shrugged Part 3 a starring role. But other than that, uh, he did play... Aang in um, Legend of Korra. He right. Played, uh, he, he, there's a few other roles for which he's known for. Uh, he plays Travis Walton in this movie. Uh, we have James Garner. And I'm not sure if his character is supposed to be like a federal agent or something like that. Yeah, because he says I'm going to, at the end of the movie, he's like, I'm going to monitor the situation on the way back in Montana. So I assume that he's crossing state lines to, to be there. His character's name is Frank Waters, spelled W-A-T-T-E-R-S. So, you know, he's got an axe to grind, and throughout the film, he believes this whole thing is a hoax. The screenplay, based on Travis Walton's book, The Walton Experience, later redubbed Fire in the Sky, and was adapted by Tracy Torme, who up to this point had largely written for Saturday Night Live. He had written for Star Trek The Next Generation, 
as well as other UFO-related programming, including UFO Cover-Up Live! Your fave. Yes, absolutely, my fave. And the miniseries, like, two-night event, Intruders, based on the work of Bud Hawkins. And finally, the film was directed by Robert Lieberman, who... He works mostly on TV shows. This is one of the few films that he's actually ever directed. Rob, you're insulting the man who directed the third Mighty Ducks movie here. Oh, my my, my mistake. My apologies. <laughs> you mean the one that people completely forget about? Exactly, yes. <laughs> so, now, Brian, I want to I ask you, when was your first viewing of Fire in the Sky? Uh, it must have been a VHS in the uh, the the late '90s because I remember my parents had gone to Radio Shack and bought one of these like um multi pack like um sleeve CDs where you get like ten different CDs with like random stuff on there, and there was one that had like um a bunch of really really low quality uh, movie trailers. So there was that, and I remember the movie Sliver starring Alec Baldwin. I want to say, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> and there were a bunch of other ones. But uh, Fire in the Sky is the one I kept watching, uh, you know, uh, over and over and over as a kid that just captivated me because the trailer was very very fast. Did you see Travis Walton approach the object on foot? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Did you personally dislike Travis Walton? What kind of question is that? You or any of your crew murdered Travis Walton? Absolutely not. What did it look like? It looked like, uh, like a fire. You expect me to believe that a flying saucer came down and Took your friend away. Why the heck aren't you speaking up for us? Why let this man talk to us like this? They took him. And then a couple of years later, I stumbled upon um, that great cover with the, the beam hitting Travis. Mm-hmm. Um, at the video store, and I ended up renting that. It was like ten or eleven, let's say, and it was uh, it was awfully, awfully terrifying. Um, there are certain parts there that still grip me as an adult. Did you have nightmares following the viewing? Uh, that's a good question. I no, not really. I didn't really have nightmares like that as a kid. I was very, very like that's a TV show. That's fine. So you were like a real normie. Yeah, absolutely. I was really, uh, I was able to compartmentalize uh, a lot of my fictional viewing in that way as a kid. Uh, less so as an adult now, as I realize everything bleeds into my dreams as I continue to grow older. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> now that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, as you get over and you begin to question what reality is, what existence is, I can understand why something like that would bleed into the dream time and your waking hours. Completely understandable. So uh, my first viewing of this was five years ago, I want to say. I was just starting to get into UFO research, and it was on Netflix, and I kind of briefly read like what Travis Walton's experience was. I think I went to his Wikipedia page or something like that, but uh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying, but I think in there was like parts that I really like cling to because, man, I can only imagine what this film would be like if we actually spent more time on the alien ship and just how terrified people would be. Yeah, of course. Oh, dear God. But this film gets dunked on a lot, and it's kind of one that's in the middle, usually. People will give it like a three, three and a half, somewhere around there. It's... um, and, you know, it, it has a lot to do with, like, you know, depictions of alien abduction, especially from people who don't actively have an interest in the subject, which I don't think most critics and reviewers and stuff really do. But the New York Times claimed that this film was more suited for comedy and that the uh, final nightmarish sequence was dreamed up. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't 
accurate to the book, but it wasn't a dream sequence, but way to pick up on the trauma there, New York Times. Roger Ebert has stated that the movie's flaw is that there is not enough detail about the aliens, and the movie ends on an inconclusive and frustrating note. He also said that the UFO in this uh, film, it looked like a pregnant orange. (laughs) So I want to tackle the flaws first up. So what do you see as some of the biggest weak points of this film? Honestly, the single biggest... So let me just read what I got for you, Rob. Mm -hmm. So this film's got it all. James Garner, a banging throwback soundtrack, alien metal greats, and a subpar performance by Robert Patrick. Yeah. So I think Robert Patrick is by far the greatest uh, negative to this. Um, in particular, there's the town hall scene where he starts like being like, but but you love me. I'm part of the community. How dare you? And also that weird um, uh, post-Travis uh, uh, return hospital confessional scene. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that was bullshit where he's just like badgering Travis and like trying to make him feel like shit because he got out of a truck to stand under a UFO and disappeared for five days. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just yeah. completely his fault. I couldn't tell, like, the way that he was reading the scene, because it felt really awkward to watch. Like, he just, Mm -hmm. come on, see, see? It was just, it was so bad. I feel like, unfortunately, that acting um, uh, was not his best. Uh, You know, he should have been the T-1000, minimal words, a lot of actions. Um, DB Sweeney was okay, but it felt weird to see a very wide-eyed and innocent Travis kind of, like, flipsing around in the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, because... If you read uh, Travis's book, you get the idea that this guy was just kind of a daredevil, you know, up and down. He uh, he just kind of did whatever he wanted. And in many ways, you know, he kind of seemed like a lighthearted Alan Dallas in this situation. Yeah. Just like willing to do whatever in whatever situation, which well, what you don't the, really get. Yeah. The whole the whole intro, they're like uh, where Travis pulls up with the whole MT Motors thing. Yeah. It felt very, very contrived, like trying to position this guy as like the ultimate good when I felt like there was a bit of nuance missing to all these characters. Yeah, I agree. In a large part, the characters in this film are very kind of one note. I mean, Alan, the the guy that played Alan Dallas was kind of pushing it a little bit because it's just like, are you angst all the time? Is there like no moment where you're not like on the defense all the time? Right. Yeah, for sure. I also think like the plot to this film is just very weak. It's just there isn't a plot in that sandwich between two kind of really good sequences, you know, from the time that uh, Travis gets abducted to the uh, the scene that on the ship that we'll talk about later. But um, there isn't a lot to really hang your hat on. In I this agree. Film. I agree. I think the biggest problem is like when your main character goes missing for a good chunk of the film, then you can mm-hmm. sort of like work around that. And I think they tried, but it didn't work out. Um, um, super well necessarily. Yeah, and in, it seems like in a lot of ways they tried to give Travis Walton's parts, you know, specifically to Mike Rogers and like not believing his story and, and and stuff. Like the the stuff that the real Travis Walton was dealing with was given to Mike Rogers, and uh, yeah, Robert Patrick just. He, he fell short on that. He definitely did. And at the end, um, when time has passed, and then he, um, Mike and Travis meet again for the first time in two years because Travis sees uh, like a billboard of a motorcycle. So he decides to drive up to his place. And yeah. uh, Robert Patrick literally looks like Billy Ray Cyrus with long hair. He does. Like, uh, you had this experience. It's not the experience that pushed him into the woods. It's the fact that he blamed Travis Walton for everything and had a fucking argument with him in a goddamn mental institution. Like, yeah. really? <laughs> <laughs> character motivation there <laughs> yeah it was uh, I, uh the framing device of the first like half of the movie where it was uh you know the the cops coming in and interrogating everyone in a room at the same time which i don't think is how it happened right so right. it was just it was a very kind of weird and pat way of sort of like moving the story forward um very quickly which i understand you need to do with a movie like this but at the same time i felt i felt weird about it yeah i i definitely felt a little weird about it too like the the way that it was kind of edited this film it just with the exception of a few sequences just didn't really work well yeah i agree um uh, so if you had to re uh, sort of like storyboard this like what framing device would you have used i don't know because i've been I, thinking about that too what what have, what have you like you really you really thought that out i feel like the uh, the abduction should have happened later yeah, I mean, like, there's just no, it, it, there's not enough setup there. It's just, like, you have this short little time with Travis Walton. 
you don't really get to know him. He's just a random dude, and, like, maybe, in terms of film sense, it doesn't lend anything to it, because, like, if you're talking about a main character, there's got to be something about him, and there isn't anything about him at the end of the day. He's just, he gets out of a truck, and he's taken. Yeah, exactly, and so, like, uh, it's tough. It's tough. I uh, do uh, feel like, for example, like they, they do set up the, the Travis Walton and Dallas kind of conflict, I guess. But the thing is, like, it's it's very introductory, right? Once again, yeah. missing a lot of nuance, and I understand why. But at the same time, they could have gone a lot deeper with it um, in terms of sort of showing all these people uh, good and bad versus, like, setting up archetypes and being like, you know what, this is, or stereotypes, rather, and uh, just being like, you know, these are the types of people that you're about to deal with. And also, something to remember is that there were only six of them on the film, but seven uh, people actually at the incident. Yeah, exactly. They they cut one off for for time, but hey, man, Henry Thomas was there. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you feel about the 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 police conflict? I didn't really feel it. I, I, it was just okay. They they don't believe this story, and and at the end of the day, James Garner doesn't believe this story. He's just like a fucking cop that's got a lot of you know blame to throw everywhere and. I assume he thinks he's going to just, like, make a fuck ton of money off of this. But, like, yeah, his threats at the end of the day, it's like, what are you going to do if he says it was a hoax? Like, what are you going to arrest him for? Yeah, I do agree that that's kind of super problematic. I would have loved to see um, uh, a suggestion more so of other alternate theories, right? That would have lent credence to sort of, like, the severity of the situation, I think. Yeah, I agree. Like, all they had was Alan Dallas had to have murdered this guy and everybody else is covering it up but like if no mike rogers had known travis walton like his entire life there's no way that he would cover up for somebody like alan dallas who was just kind of he wasn't really well known to the group i don't think yeah and i mean uh, i do understand setting up that conflict in a certain way to sort of present like an alternate theory but i didn't think it was a strong enough one they didn't really pursue a lot right right yeah yeah absolutely it's just like there's setup, but there's not really a good payoff there, and, and like the setup is not strong enough for the uh, premise of the film to really hang its hat on. At the end, it of would the have day. needed better actors, I think, to do that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this film, well, it only had a budget of what, like fifteen million dollars, yeah. something like that. So maybe with a bigger budget, you could have got you know better actors. I mean, they've long touted that there is a remake in the works, but. Even then, I don't know if they'll be able to pull it off. I don't think alien abductions actually make good films most of the time because I think people lose the plot really quickly. Yeah. Let I me mean, most recently you and I talked about the the fourth kind, right? And the fourth yeah. kind is yet another. I feel th- I preferred the internal logic in this movie to the fourth kind a lot more. I feel there's a lot less to trash instead of like it's worse sin is that it's it's a very mediocre movie with a really interesting subject. I think there's an interesting premise in there if you can pay it off really well. And maybe that's just Torme's writing or whatever. But if you really wanted to do a, a film where you sandwiched it in between these two big things and like made it about a murder investigation, you could have gone on about it a, a lot of interesting different ways than yeah. the way that they did because it just seemed like they're like half-heartedly done. Yeah, thinking about this now as we're speaking about it, though, I feel another angle they could have taken as a character study, um, starting with Travis post-abduction, because something that the film does really well and sort of like it's it's super shitty that it's at the end, but the the PTSD that Travis suffers is real and lasting and meaningful. Um, he has that throwaway line where he says he hasn't slept well in two years, right, at the two-year mark of his incident. I feel like watching a man try to take his life back post-traumatic experience would have been really interesting and then intersperse the story of how he got there. Yeah, absolutely. I think they did a good job of playing up like the actual trauma by and large and in the way that it affected him because i i mean they treated it like it was you know a ptsd flashback so uh i think that's in line with what a lot of uh experiencers go through and stuff travis he did go through regressive hypnosis but he didn't even really need it because he knew everything he had right conscious memory to the point in which he did have conscious memory so i think yeah torme just focused on the wrong shit i think so too but i wonder if it's just at the direction of the producers and everyone else you know or mm. if it's just he decided to start this way and everyone kind of liked where it was going yeah yeah that very well could be i mean you know different uh, agendas have to be served on films like this and this is a better job 
that uh, Universal did on this one than they did on Communion. Communion was just a dude, yeah. fucking the, trailer the... <laughs> fire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, you know, you've got your Christopher Walken in there sort of, like, stumbling his way through something that's, like, very, very important. And I felt yeah. like it was just, he, he hindered that whole movie. Yeah, he did. <laughs> there was a moment on the set, and I remember hearing about this, where uh, Whitley Strieber went up to Christopher Walken and said, you know, I don't like the way you're playing me. You're playing me a little too crazy. And then uh, he just basically turns to him and says, well, if the shoe fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, that kind of shows how he felt about the entire experience, right? Which is, is unfortunate. I'd, cu- I'd be curious to know how each of the actors, especially D.B. Sweeney and um, J- uh, James Gardner, as well as Robert Patrick, felt about their portrayals and the people that they had to actually like um, um, become. Right. And I think the weirdest thing is like there are only four people that are portrayed by their actual names in this film. So, yeah, Mike Rogers, Travis Walton, Alan Dallas and the uh, polygraph examiner, Cy Gilson, are the only names from real life that are actually used in this. Which I can't is... remember. Is the UFO investigator also like the real? I can't remember. No, I don't think it is. No, I, yeah, okay, that's what I figured. I couldn't remember specifically, and I forgot to look that up. I'll be very honest with you. On my list of uh, of uh, things to do, Fire in the Sky related, that was kind of on the, the bottom. <laughs> Yeah, well, speaking of that, that moment in that movie served no purpose whatsoever. Absolutely. It was so weird. And it almost, he came off a little man in blackish. He did. Like, this is an interrogation. I'm going to throw a thousand questions at you before you could even have time to answer one. Clearly, you're pretty much in shock, but I'm going to throw questions at you. And also the other thing, too, that I wanted to, the film to address is, okay, so Mike gets the card and then suddenly this guy shows up to interrogate him. But you don't see Mike's decision, whether that was left on the cutting room floor or just not written at all. Like, what was the decision process to call this person up? Right. There is no motivating factor. There's just, I got this business card from this one guy and that's it. You can't just do that and expect it to carry some weight in the film at any point. It's just some rando dude just sanded you a fucking business card and you're going to call him at a pretty pivotal point in the movie. Exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like there's once again, it's a lack of nuance there, too, because it would have been fun, uh, you know, uh, in terms of like a terrible movie, if they had really played up the, the UFO crackpot angle. Right. And just yeah. like like almost like the lone gunman, uh, you know, of this movie. Um, but I, yeah, I felt like it's just like this bland, nondescript man uh, is just hanging out there and then he disappears. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We we never hear from him again. Doesn't play a part. And if you go through the the story of Travis Walton, there are a lot of interesting angles to cover it from. There's just a lot of press coverage. So like y- you would figure there was a lot of material to work with, and it's just like I don't know, Torme just like cut and pasted where he wanted to, and uh, it, it, it kind of shows a weak script for when it's for. Yeah, absolutely. I I do think once again, like it's it's an unfortunate hindrance uh, to the story itself, like the the real story, right? Because I feel like once again, nuance is missing. So therefore, uh, any interactions you witness are kind of like the very face, like like very like surface level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What did you think about the the actual ship that they showed Travis standing underneath? I think it's it's very hard to uh, display um, UFOs in a realistic kind of way because you mm-hmm. either have the early 90s super cheap Unsolved Mysteries, I drew a sphere on a Mac kind of thing, mm-hmm. or else you have like an Independence Day uh, style gigantic ship that's, you know, cost a ton of money. Um, how do you, you know, th- keeping the film's budget in mind, how do you actually portray um, a UFO without it seeming like too cheesy? And I felt like it was actually okay. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I think what made it good by and large, is that they made it seem like something that has never been seen before. So yes. I, I think, you know, the fact that they didn't recreate the, the Travis Walton UFO is a good way to go because it, in a way it looked like, if I can equate it to something, it kind of looks like a trash can lid and underneath <laughs> it they, they like taped a ball but like, you know really better done right CGI than that and like um i liked how on the bottom of the ship it, it almost looked like you know molten lava which was really <laughs> fucking cool i yeah I, I thought i thought that was the best part about it is the way that it, it really like it looked alive almost and i thought that like while it may not be the true ship i felt like as a stand-in ship to sort of like be visually resting it, it worked quite well yeah and i think it fit into 
the fucking scary ass sequence that that we'll be getting to soon. I don't I don't want to jump the gun here because it is the best part of this movie and it's also probably one of the scariest fucking scenes from the 90s uh, in, in anything that I can ever remember seeing. Um yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that. I it's 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 very real. But yeah, let's save that for later. Let's still can the only part of that scene that like I very much dislike is uh, the way in which Travis leaves the truck, it's almost like he seemed to be like a hippie flower child who's like, I'm going to go to this, you know, a weird spot in the sky and just stare up and hope. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, he had a curiosity about him, but see, it makes him seem like, oh, I'm a trusting child. I, yeah. Uh, nothing's going to happen to me. But it's like done in a really not Travis Walton way in the in which the character has been presented at this point. And like, right. he's a, yeah, he's he's a little too lighthearted. For, yeah, I think it, the he came off. He came off like a real dipshit, unfortunately, in that scene. You know, yeah. the thing is, that, like, I understand. I don't understand his his motivation there because, well, they were like reading like the World Weekly News before or whatever, like in the truck leading up to there. And I know that, like, you know, it's kind of like a Chekhov's gun. If you start talking about that kind of thing, it's going to lead to that um, later on. Not necessarily like in the third act, but the end of the first, I felt like it really did a disservice to the character itself. Like, it undermined a lot of like the the last twenty minutes of the film where he goes through real trauma. Yeah, absolutely. What did you uh, think of the score of this film? I enjoyed it. I felt like it added uh, a fair amount to the movie. Um, uh, it wasn't overpowering in the way that certain uh, film scores can kind of come in, especially if you start using like a gigantic orchestra to sort of like um, show a point for certain films. Uh, I felt like it, it was an effective way in which to convey uh, mood that worked better than um, the acting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think one of the best sequences of that is at the beginning of the film where you see these eerie lights coming through the woods and like these violins are like whistling at you at points like it builds up to a whistle and then it, you know, comes back down uh, as the truck is getting closer coming through the woods. But the film score by um, Mark Isham, it captured a lot of the terror in in situations like this and it was kind of interesting to see it you know interlaced in those moments too and and especially like um i kind of like some of the flourishes where they're trying to make you think that the the person's looking at a ufo like when james garner's character is like just randomly driving on a road when he gets a call and you know he's stopping at the uh I think it's the the, the train stop yeah. there, but yeah. he sees you see these red lights coming down, and it's like, are we you know getting the idea that he saw UFO two, and then it's like, no, it's just the fucking guard coming down for the train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I uh, it was weird. I I feel like the uh, the score really set the tone, and then was like dramatically undercut by every single performance, almost. Yeah, absolutely, and I think the subtleness of it and the intensity when it was needed really played the absolute terrifying moments in this fucking film and uh i mean he he was nominated for a saturn award brian <laughs> you take what you can get in the jar right like i think that like in terms of like science fiction and, and, and fantasy films you you kind of you can grab what you, what you can what do you think the film did right I do think the, the the ship design I think is is really good. I feel like you were saying before, like the score really helped. Um, I do think uh, the last twenty minutes were very effective. Um, mm-hmm. Both the abduction experience itself as well as the aftermath. I felt like DB Sweeney in those moments, um, uh, his acting really kind of did a one eighty. And I guess in certain ways they're trying to portray uh, Travis as a very innocent kind of person at the beginning of the film, just to show his like degradation um, after his experience at the end. So I feel like it's weird. But then at the last scene, I felt like very much undercut that whole arc of like him um, trying to live uh, through this by like ending on this like weird almost happy note yeah I feel like it was yeah that was definitely forced because it's like well you have to have some conclusion in a film like this it's not like you know everyday life where in Travis Walton's case he's taken once he's never taken again it's not like the aliens appear to be really all that interested in him they don't try to interact with him in any way and he comes to believe you know further down the line that the reason that they took him was because they could have killed him or you know hurt yeah. him really badly and i kind of feel like if they hadn't played that final that that scene on the ship like that it wouldn't have even been as good a film as people consider it to be I definitely agree that that's that's the the saving grace of the entire film too. Um, is just like you have to spend what, like an hour ten in order to get there, an hour twenty almost. 
Yeah, it, it takes quite a bit of time uh, before you really get there. And I mean, like one of the biggest issues too, I think, in terms of factual uh, factual um, um, sorts of like sets of events, is is the whole lie detector portion. Yeah, which I I hated it. I hated it because it kind of went against what really happened. It's not like one guy tests conclusive and you're like, oh no, we got to retest them all again. Like it didn't really add anything to that scene. It didn't add any tension, especially when you got the guy playing Cy Gelson saying, "Well, it seems like the other four are telling the truth." And like, yeah, yeah. I feel like they they created that um, um, sort of like fork in the road from from the real events uh, to create some kind of like a dramatic tension, but it doesn't work in the framing of uh, the way in which all of the other participants in real life uh, either were inconclusive and then retested and, you know, it was fine, but but it kind of breaks the unity of the group who experienced that. Yeah, it does, which goes against the, the really solid claim that this case has in UFO history, so... Yeah, they kind of they kind of dropped the ball too, and I think like the the character arc for you know James Garner's character is kind of like it almost seems like they ended it the way they did with him to in order to maybe like uh, if the film did well do a sequel or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost right because uh, you know you could probably turn that into a very uh, dramatic property uh, if you ever wanted. I just felt like he was there to be the foil. There was no real progression from like um, uh, you know denial and like anger uh, all the way onwards to the end of like it almost felt like a Scooby Doo villain where he's like those damn kids caught me. Yeah, <laughs> it's so it's so fucking bad. Is there is there anything else you think the film did particularly well? I don't think so. Like, I'm really trying to, like, be nice to it because it's not mm-hmm. nearly as bad as I thought it would be um, rewatching it again. But I really do think, yeah, I think it's its worst qualities is that it has very middling acting and uh, the script doesn't know, um, you know, sort of justice either. Because I guess you write to the story. You don't necessarily write to the characters in a lot of these situations, right? So I feel like the script was written and tossed off and then um, the casting began. And I feel like, unfortunately, it was like, a little underwhelming. Yeah, and I tend to wonder if they did have that bigger budget, how better a film it would have been how you know the actors that they could have got to play the parts and i was kind of thinking about that too i was trying to figure out who like i would cast as like mike and travis and i really don't have a good answer to that no i don't i don't really have a good answer to that either um because i don't think any like legitimate big name actor would attach themselves to do a film like this i think a film like this could be a great challenge for a good actor agreed if you can, you know, if you're willing to put yourself in that headspace and, and you're willing to submit to, like, this idea that alien abductions are a thing and this is what your film is based on. And I think <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, from the top to the bottom, like, how serious people can take this at the end of the day. Because if your critics can't take it seriously and, like, you don't present it in a serious enough manner it it doesn't do your film a service in any I way. definitely do agree with that I um yeah I do feel like it was kind of once again like kind of middling kind of in the middle like if it had a better budget as you were saying like it could have been a better film or just a smarter casting choices right you don't necessarily I understand you need some star pattern to be able to like propel a film like this forward but like finding a great unknown to to play Travis would have been really interesting too to play off of um you know Robert Patrick Yeah I agree the, the film also does this really weird thing, and I'm not sure because I, I only did some cursory research, but um, the whole, like, radio signal trope kind of was, like, annoying yet again. Yeah, yeah, it was. So I just, I felt like, unfortunately, like it was, like, once again, like, it's another trope to show, like, oh, uh, something sinister is about to happen. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it fucks with your radio. Whoop, whoop-de-doo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it time to talk about the centerpiece of the movie? Yeah, it definitely is. So, um... We're going to talk about the most frightening and best shot sequence of the film, and uh, I'm going to give you guys, like, a rundown of how this plays out, because, like, my words are not going to do it justice. You you really need to, like, watch this fucking horror fucking show that is, just unfolds before your eyes in, in, like, the most fucking terrifying 20-minute sequence of just about any film in the 90s. So, first things first, so... Travis Walton, he comes home. He, they, they come home, they have this, like, big party for him and shit like that, and, like, he's kind of triggered the moment that he steps foot in the house. There's so many people there. 
and you know it doesn't it, like why would you bring somebody into that environment in the first place but you know that, that it was kind of a weird decision like hey welcome back yeah. from your trauma here's ten thousand people yeah yeah exactly here's so many people you know just shoved in your face at once but like he's hiding under a table and his uh girlfriend at the time goes looking for him and she finds him underneath the kitchen table so she goes to him and she touches him and he just starts freaking out and there's a bottle of maple syrup that spills and you can see it like slowly creeping toward the edge of the table until it finally just like hits him in the mouth and it (laughs) triggers this full-on experience so travis finds himself inside some kind of pod in this in this memory and it's fucking nasty there's like slimy fucking shit all inside of it it gives the tauntaun innards a run for its money yeah and he breaks through this thin membranous barrier and finds himself inside what looks like a large open shaft that just goes down and up a little bit and like this scene almost kind of reminds me of like the fucking matrix yeah that's what i was thinking it's very organic looking yeah, it it is very organic looking, like, everything looks fucking dirty, which, if you listen to some uh, experiencers and stuff, like, uh, Whitley Strieber was one, I think, if you want to believe Ed Walters, he's another, that, talking about how, like, their ships always felt like they were fucking dirty, and this is, like, the dirtiest of the dirty, so... Travis, he's trying to he, he's trying to climb out. He's trying to climb up and kind of loses his grip and he's like falls away from his pod. He realizes that he's like in zero G, so he's just floating there. But he's got a tether. It's in a sequence that makes you think that he was birthed and he was clinging to some kind of umbilical. And you know he tries to get his bearings, but not before breaking through another membrane coming close to the wall and in it he finds a rotting body on the inside and right. G- Jesus fucking Christ. That was terrifying. Yeah. Because you have to fucking wonder at this point. Cause the, the body that's in there is like decomposing. It's still got some skin on it, but like half of its body is just fucking gone. And like, would this fucking have happened to Travis in this film? If he had continued to fucking lie in that chamber, I, That's a really good point, actually. That had my head spinning. But once he has his bearings, he begins to climb upward, and he emerges above a room in which a bunch of suits that resemble gray aliens are just, like, hanging from this, like, kind of, like, drop-down ceiling a little bit. And Travis, he climbs down, he starts examining these suits, and while he does, one of the beings approaches him while it's wearing one of these suits. Travis kicks it, and it, the helmet of it falls off. You see the face of the alien as it goes flying backward a little bit. And Travis scurries down, tries to find cover, but ultimately the aliens, the, the alien that uh, came into contact with just starts dragging him by the fucking leg. Yeah. And there's this long sequence where he's dragged down this long-ass fucking hallway, and it's terrifying. And, like, one alien becomes two aliens, and these both of these aliens are fucking dragging him until they finally bring him into a room and place him, you know, rather aggressively on a table surrounded by, you know, there's two beings at first. He's fucking screaming his head off. At one point, he just turns and screams in the face of one of them, which is great. I love that. Uh, and then... Um, they get him on that table, and he looks over, and he can see a third fucking being, like, coming forward. And then they place this fucking weird-ass goddamn sheet on him. And then they take another one and place it on his head. And then they just, like, look up for a moment, which is very weird. And then the next moment, the sheet is just, like, pulled super fucking tight. Like it's a, in a, a bag in a vacuum sealer. And he screams, and the aliens rip open, like, the sheet uh, around his face in, like, a couple spots. One in his um, left eye, and the other around his mouth. A device is shoved in his mouth, and a log tube is connected to it. It's kind of like if you're going to a doctor and they're going to scope your stomach, but, like, the tube is... Yeah, it's a really thin, like, long-ass tube. They shove it down his fucking mouth uh a substance is secreted onto his eyes dear fuck god like this is all bullshit and then this strange needle-like device 
starts to descend from the ceiling. And just as the device looks like it's going to hit his eye, that's when Travis, he blacks out and he's back. He's in the psychologist's office and holy fuck. Yeah, it was super effective. Unfortunately, like not not real, feeling like real, but not real, real. Uh, but like, what an effective scene, right? And sort of as an aside, I felt like it, he almost looked like the Borg from Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I definitely got that kind of vibes, which would kind of make sense. I mean, Tracy Torme did did right for Star Trek, so exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I I do feel like it is is such an effective sequence of events because it shows like if you or I were faced in a similar situation, the 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 terror, the the confusion, the anger, the fear, everything I felt was like really well mapped out there, and I felt like that entire sequence was like handled so so well. The the aliens they almost look fucking harmless until they start doing shit. Yeah, like they they look like they could be your fucking grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a way and it, it's kind of cool that you know tracy torme brings up this idea that what if these things are you know the, the, these grays that we talk about like you know all the time as being these staples in pop culture what if it was aliens wearing a fucking suit exactly yeah that was a little more meta that than i wanted it to be and for somebody who's into the ufo stuff that that'll fucking play on your every last nerve it's really interesting because it's not something that I've, I necessarily consider a lot, but now it's, you know, it's on my mind. Yeah, it's on your mind because it was fucking portrayed in a goddamn movie. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I, the entire sequence, the, the finding of the dead body, too, like, it, it, there are a lot of interesting questions that are like, were they planning on keeping him stasis? Why did he wake up? Why did they bring him there? What were they going to do with him? What were they trying to look for? Yeah, like... What's terrifying is not just what you're seeing, but, like, the questions that you're fucking left with at the end of the day, because you don't, like, fucking know anything. It's just, like, he's a fucking lab rat, and they're gonna do whatever the fuck they want with him. They're, um... Fuck. It's, um... Yeah, uh, I don't even want to fucking put (laughs) words to it, because it's just, like it's like fucking doctors doing mad fucking medical experiments to somebody and in ways that you don't know how they are going to affect him. And the thing is, is like at the end of the day, you don't know how they really affected him. You just know the trauma that he takes forth with him after the experience. See, and that trauma could have been a really good tool to use as a narrative thread throughout the movie. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, if it had been uh, shot a little bit better, yeah, and, and, and like, realized out a little better, it, it would have made for a, a better fucking movie at the end of the day. Yeah, but what a, what a sequence. And I feel like, unfortunately, like I was saying before, like, it got undercut by the, the epilogue, unfortunately. Yeah, it did. And that's the nature of film itself. It has to have some kind of fucking ending. You can't just end it on a bunch of fucking questions that don't, you know, have any answers. But... At the end of the day, film can only depict something so realistic because that's the way film has to do it. It has yeah. to be a good ending, it has to be a bad ending. It has to it has to end somehow. And like it's not the ending that anybody would want. It's not the ending that anybody would want to live with because you have to live with the fucking questions. Travis's real experience, yeah, it's nothing like this. It's a lot tamer in in many ways. Although waking up to see some very strange-looking beings around you is fucking terrifying, no doubt. Um, the fact that there are other human-looking-like beings involved in it is uh, it eases the situation a bit. But it's also there's an underlying unease there because they never talked to him they never said anything to him they just gestured they just gestured and like you living with the question is not something that film is seems to be set up to do or like it, it always seems like people are kind of given short shrift they feel like they were cheated or something like that yeah, I agree with that. I feel like there could have been a better narrative device to to be used to just to sort of like tie everything together. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily the questions that you have to live with that can be the central focus of that. It's how you fucking live with it after exactly. the fact. Exactly. And fucking, they definitely copped out on the ending. Like, I, I kind of want to track down Torme's script and actually read through it. 
and see, you know, what's there and what, you know, maybe what was changed and everything like that. Because I think there's a lot of fucking shit that you can hold on to that is that is good about that film. And, like, I'm wondering if the changes just really fucking tanked it. Yeah, I wonder that too. Like, it'd be fun to to find uh, like a you know a working draft or something to sort of like compare and contrast to see what got changed and like how far along things did get changed, right? Because I feel like there may have been you know um, I don't want to use the word interference, but perhaps like creative direction from a number of people, producers, directors, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at the kind of abduction films to this point, like in in what we have. There doesn't seem to be a fucking good one in the lot. No, no. I think the closest, uh, and it, and I think it's just because of the way that it plays with its subject matter, was Intruders. Like, Intruders isn't a bad two-fucking-night, four-hour fucking thing. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't terrible. No, yeah. I uh, um, I mentioned this when we were recording the fourth kind, but uh, Extra has a pretty decent scene that reminded me of of this too uh yeah i'm really trying to think uh, in terms of, like effective like alien abduction stories there's not a ton of them there really isn't and i think it's because you lose the human element of it very quickly i don't know if people just like aren't entertained by like i i mean trauma's not entertaining it's no. it's not it's just if you're not willing to for one frame your character well and then had that fucking payoff well it's not gonna fucking work but two i don't see it making a good film at the end of the day because it's like the aliens are the stars and they shouldn't be yeah and but i think that's also like the the driving narrative right especially like if you're looking to make a profit what's more interesting a character study or aliens from space so you're gonna obviously go aliens from space right and especially when i go and i look for if I want to do an episode on something, the first thing that you would go for and the first thing that you know people will tune in for is an episode that involves aliens of any kind. So yeah. you automatically go for the CE3 kind of material. This person had this kind of encounter with uh, this kind of uh, entity and, and, and whatever. I mean, I was going back and forth with John Tenney on Twitter today about a fucking alien that looked like Batman that he said you looked mean like Catman. Cat- yeah, exactly. Like we went back and forth on that, but like you wouldn't be having those kind of conversations if you're talking about someone seeing a fucking craft from a thousand feet away. No, exactly, yeah. And it wouldn't make a good movie at all. No. I mean there there might be an interesting way in which you do it that isn't a typical like Hollywood narrative, but like it would take a lot of work. If you frame like a film like that right, you could have good payoffs. Like I think it's terrifying to think that ufos have disarmed our nuclear fucking arsenal before and if you could play that up in a goddamn film and not have it be some like giant alien invasion thing i think it could be more terrifying than the alien invasion shit because the alien invasion shit has to have a fucking payoff at the end of the day you have to defeat the aliens at the end of the day and the only way you're going to do that these days as if they're allergic to fucking water, as if they 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 are not immune from our germs, and if you can somehow give their fucking mothership a, a computer virus, yeah, or if they'll just go away themselves by themselves, right? Yeah, I oh, I mean like that's the fool's hope. That's what you hope at the end of the day. But like, fuck, I I just fuck UFOs <laughs> just don't fucking make good goddamn fucking movies. Yeah, I, unless it's like a Mars attack, like like zany romp, you know, that almost is like uh, making fun of itself. Like it doesn't really lend itself to like a really really good um, um, experience necessarily. Which is kind of like this weird dichotomy between like capturing a UFO with like a camera or something like that and depicting a UFO on screen. It's not it's not a subject that is made for film easily. UFOs could so easily be fake today, and like ufo films are boring so like they're not made for film they're not made for film in any fucking kind of way no I, and i do think like it would take a really interesting take in, in order for it to work and it's, it's not here yet yes um and if angelo was listening to this i'd like to tell him that a uh if you're talking about capturing a ufo at night your phone cannot actually get a good photo of a light a small light in the air at night it doesn't work like that your phone is not that good 
sorry uh, co-host angelo uh, if yeah you're listening if you've made it this far congrats i guess too uh, yeah yeah uh i don't i don't think he i don't think he's a patreon member and i don't think he has access to the feed but like <laughs> i remember one of his arguments and in, in many episodes of double dead he's like everybody's walking around with a camera why don't they take a picture of it it's like because a picture would not be or a video would not be good because your phone cannot capture a small light in the sky at night with any decent quality. It can't even fucking capture a decent quality photo of the moon. Yet uh, people continue to post those exact photos and videos on the UFO subreddit. So go figure. Yeah, I know, man. I know. So uh, if you had to rate this episode on a scale of one to five debilitating laser beams to the chest, what would you rate it? I'd probably like two and a half or three, I think. Yeah. Like, it's not bad. It's not horrible. It's not great. Uh, you know, there's a couple of really good sequences, bad acting. Yeah, two and a half to three. Yeah, I'm I'm at two and a half right now. And I think that's, uh, if you look on any website that uh, has this going on, that's, uh, that's what it is. It's a middle-of-the-road film about a fascinating UFO case at the end of the day. And, you know, this, this is where we are. So... That's going to do it for this episode. Brian, where can people find you and all the stuff you do on the internet? Let's do this. So you can find me personally over on Twitter at Brian Hasty. So Brian with an I-H-E-S-T-I-E. Uh, Rob, you can find uh, our podcast together, The Coda, at The Coda Podcast. We release uh, musically-based episodes every other week. Uh, and then there is my main baby, which is Double Density. Uh, it's a mix of tech tales and paranormal primaries. And right now, we are doing a weekly schedule, which has been really interesting. Um, and you can uh, find us over at DoubleDensity.net, as well as all of your favorite podcast apps. We're on all of them now. You are on all of them now. Yes, we all are all on, on all of them now. God damn it. So uh, uh, thanks for coming on again, man. This uh, It's always a good time when we can get together and discuss anything, you know? Dude, I love talking about UFO movies with you. So like, I think this is our third time, right? We did Signs. We did the fourth kind. I think we did this. Uh, and and we've done, yeah, we've done some documentaries too. So True, man. yeah. And Fuck also Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved mysteries, god damn it. We, yeah, we if just... anyone hasn't listened to that episode, please, please, please hit up Rob's feed and go take a look. Yeah, there there's some great fucking shit there. Um so uh for us, uh if you want to find anything that we do, ourstrangeguys.com, you should know that by now. You're on Patreon. You know everything that's over there. But uh our theme song was composed by Big Cats, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or inside some terrifying goddamn alien spacecraft. In Grey We Trust.